Good morning. Harvest Muskoka, Harvest Perry Sound. My name is Lee Lewis. I'm a pastor here at the church. I have the privilege of being with you this morning and sharing of the word. We're going to be in John chapter 15. Uh, if you have your Bible, turn to John chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and one of our ushers will, would bring you one. John chapter 15, verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, then feel free to keep that Bible as a gift um, so that you can take that home and begin to get into God's Word. So before I get into John 15, we'll, we'll read verses 1 through 11 together and then go back and start to break it down. But before I do that, I want to reference a couple things. Several weeks ago, I preached on Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And I, it was the, the title of the sermon were... Um, uh, implications of a misguided or, or misplaced identity. And so uh, I talked about the, the myriad of ways that our culture or our upbringing would try to influence our understanding of identity. Uh, but, but what I took us to Ephesians chapter 2, because Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 are going to make it quite clear that in Christ, your identity has been secured and you are utterly determined by the kingdom of light. You become children of God's sons and daughters. You're given a new heart. You're given a new name, et cetera, et cetera. We talked about that at length, but it also talks about those for who are not in Christ. They're utterly determined by the kingdom of darkness, that there, there is no light. There is no hope in that place, and you fall in one of two categories. And so what I'm wanting us to do in John chapter 15, what I'm hoping God's word points us towards is um, furthering from abiding from that identity. And, 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 and what, what's involved around that, Jesus is going to show us in John chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Jesus says this, I am the true vine, and my father the vine dresser. Every branch of my father, every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words, abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that you, your joy may be full. All right, a couple things about the flow of what Jesus is saying um, because uh, there's several parts of these 11 verses that are unbelievably weighty. 
unbelievably difficult for us to navigate through, but it's quite clear in scripture what they mean. And so we, we really need to lean into what Jesus is saying. So Jesus is speaking in, in a metaphor. He's speaking in an, an allegory, an, an analogy, something along those lines. And, and when Jesus teaches from a parable, basically the premise of a parable is this story gives you a picture of who God is. The, the implications of this parable shine light on the characteristics of God. Um, a metaphor is a bit different um, because a metaphor is not intended to be taken beyond what the metaphor is being spoken of. And so the, the, the risk that I take here with this metaphor that Jesus is using is to go beyond its intended meaning. But Jesus is gonna be quite clear about what we are to see from the vine, the vine dresser, and the branches. This is also um, the last of seven I am statements that Jesus makes. And the I am statements give clear picture of who Christ is. So you would have heard some of these if you've been in church any length of time. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And here we see I am the true vine. But what's different about this last of seven I am statements is the only one where Jesus says I am and then he furthers the I am with the Father being the vine dresser. So we're gonna see something important between the son's role, Jesus's role, and the father's role in this. Let's pick up right in verse one. It says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. So, bear with me for a second. Keep your finger here and turn to Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1. And keep your finger in John, because that's where we're going to be. So Jesus says, I am the true vine. What does he mean by true vine? In the Old Testament, what you're going to see is you're going to see a lot of different imagery that God uses towards his people and that the people of God, the Israelites, latch onto. One of the consistent imageries that you'll see is vineyard language or vine language. And so you'll see this throughout the Old Testament. But it's interesting because every account where God's using the vineyard language, it's to talk about the fruitlessness of God's people. But the people latch onto the language because they use it as kind of a, a bragging right. So literally, historically, they have money that dates back to this period that's imprinted on the money, vines around the edges of the coins. Some of the synagogues carved in the stones ornately around the synagogues, there was vines carved in the stones that the people of God, the Israelites, saw themselves as God's redemptive plan, God's salvation for the world. Yet Jesus says, I am the true vine. We need to understand Isaiah verse five, chapter five, verse one and two is gonna give us some understanding. He says, let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. You see the language, vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it and he looked for it to yield grapes. 
but it yielded wild grapes. And, and if we were gonna continue on to read, it gets worse. It's a worthless vineyard. And Jesus is saying, I am the true vine. So in essence, what Jesus is saying is he's saying that God's redemptive story, God's salvation, God's life was never tied to a nation. It was never tied to a people. It was never tied to our ability to keep the law. He's saying, I'm the true vine. I'm the source of life. I'm salvation. I'm God's redemptive story seen. But he keeps going. He talks about the Father. Go back to John chapter 15. So Isaiah presents this perfect imagery of God's perfect provision, perfect protection, the fact that he put it on the best side of the hill and not in the valley where it could get collected by water. He provides a watchtower to oversee it, but it produced wild grapes. It could not produce life. I am the true vine, he says, and my father is the vine dresser. So that word vine dresser there in John 15, verse one, the word vine dresser is interesting because it's, you know, I don't, I don't know what you're understanding. I'm gonna talk a lot about horticulture today. And just so you know, I don't have my master's in horticulture. My dad does though. And so I'm gonna be speaking from his expertise. But a vine dresser isn't just somebody who, who trims the hedges. The, the, the vine dresser isn't somebody who gets, the, gets the, the whackers out and decides to go cut a couple branches off here and there or take the chainsaw and overhaul the tree or the shrub. The vine dresser, the word used in verse one is holistic cultivation. It's a holistic care, a whole, holistic cultivation involving cleaning, spading, clearing, planting, pruning, etc. So my dad, he... He's got his, his, his degree in horticulture. Um, he's a master arborist. He's a master botanist. And here, here's what that means about for us, that he'll forget more about trees than I'll ever know, okay? Um, and so he knows everything you can know about trees and then some, and probably not everything, but he knows a lot. And so, so growing up where I grew up, like I, I, my parents still live where I grew up. And I can remember when I was a kid going to these different job sites for his companies where my mom was a landscape architect and they would draw a full plan for a business or, or for a, or, or a big house and, and they would put the trees in. And then from, from design to tree in the ground, from irrigation and all, they would do the whole job. It was a big outfit. And my dad, he knew the soil type. He knew the alkalinity in the soil. He knew the type of water. He knew what trees needed a certain type of light at a certain type of day. Who knew? I just thought you put it in the ground. No, but it's a certain type of tree and it can't have too much exposure at a certain type of day and on and on and on. And if you go back to this day to some of the places that they planted up, that they designed, that they cultivated, you'll see these trees flourishing because they're right where they need to be planted. They've been cultivated well. They've been cultivated. And the vine dresser holistically sees what you and I need and perfectly cares for and tends us. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that a beautiful picture? Where, where we would step aside and critique parts of our life and God's like, no, no, no. I know what's gone into the soil there. You don't know. I know why this is growing this way, but I'm gonna trim it this way. And here's, here's the analogy. Here's the metaphor that Jesus is painting for us continues on in verse two. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. So hang on for a second. Let's read that again. 
every branch of mine, did you catch that, of mine? Whose is it? Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. This is a weighty text that we're going to have to deal with. It's tied into part of verse three, but it's fully explained in verse six. But the emphasis is not here. The emphasis is not the ones that are taken away. Keep reading. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So um, Ezekiel 15, you don't have to turn there, but let me read a couple verses from Ezekiel 15 for you. It says this. And the word of the Lord came to me, son of man. How does the wood of the vine surpass any wood? The vine branch that is among the trees of the forest is wood taken from it to make anything. In other words, nobody goes to the vineyard to grab the wood and make a wood floor. You get mahogany for that, right? You've got millions of dollars to spend on a home. You're not gonna get vine wood. What's the purpose of the vineyard? To bear fruit. To bear fruit. And for those who do not bear fruit, the branches are taken away and they wither. Verse six, we'll talk about that in a second and the implications of that. The branches that do bear fruit are cultivated. So two types of pruning are being compared here. Um, and so commentators would, would call these different things, but, 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 but in general, what's being talked about is a winter pruning or a fall pruning or a spring pruning. And again, I'm not gonna go off what the commentator said. I'm gonna go off what I saw my dad do growing up. In the winter or the fall, we would go after the trees that drop their limbs. You would watch the trees, you would watch the shrubs, you would watch them flower all year long and, and you would watch the branches that weren't bearing fruit or weren't, weren't functioning the way that they were intended to function. And then when the fall came or the winter come, you would go and you would prune these. You would cut off, you would take these branches away because they were actually pulling nutrients from the greater good for the tree. It's the winter pruning. It's harsh, but it's significant for the life of the whole of the tree. And you take the dead branches, those that do not produce fruit, you cut them off, you put them in a pile, and verse six is gonna say eventually to be burned. This pruning that Jesus is talking about is a pruning of judgment. There's no softer way for me to say what this type of pruning is. And here's what I know about me. I have read this very verse at different periods in my life when I was drifting from the Lord wondering, am I one of those branches? Because I didn't see fruit in my life. This is important for everyone in the room to wrestle with. What is Jesus actually saying? Because some people have used this verse to argue that you can lose your salvation. And what I would contend is that Jesus is going to explain that you can't lose your salvation because if you never bore fruit, you never had it. And Jesus is referencing, and he's gonna draw in language from other parts of the gospel. He's gonna use the picture of Judas to explain that, but more on that in a second. The emphasis is on bearing fruit, and you see this. Bearing fruit is the purpose of the vineyard, that a vineyard that does not produce fruit is worthless, and there's two forms of pruning to do that, the winter and the spring. So when, I, um, when me and my wife got married in 2005, we moved straight from New Orleans, like several months after getting married, we moved straight to the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. We lived in a town just north of the Dallas area called Louisville. So we get our first house, pretty pumped up about that, you know, somewhat newlyweds, and, and we've got this new house. And, and so we moved in in the springtime, and in the backyard, lo and behold, is this peach tree. 
And it's probably the ugliest peach tree that's ever been on the face of the earth. Um, if you've ever seen a peach tree, think really ugly peach tree. And this was our peach tree in the back. And so as, as, as I was turning our attention to the inside of the house, I wasn't even caring about the landscaping. I'll get to that in the winter. I'll get to that next spring. We've got to get our house situated as we're moving into it. So my parents come, they, they, they come to visit. And, and just like my dad had always done, he began to walk the property and he began to give me ideas about here's what you could do with this tree. Here's what we could do with these hedges. Here's what we could, we could do with these vines over here. He can see the big picture and he understands the, the, like everything, like a master cultivator, he understands how it's going to grow and what we can do to leverage what we've got going on in our yard. We go to the backyard and I get to show him the peach tree. I said, look at this ugly peach tree, this is probably going to get cut down. He said, no, 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 no. Let's not cut it down. When winter comes, I'll bring my, my tools and we'll prune this upright. And what he did that winter is he saw the branches, he saw the tree structure, and that winter came in and removed the branches that were pulling nutrients from the hole of the tree and that weren't bearing fruit or branches that were dead. We cut those branches, just like it's saying here, threw those in a pile and have never been seen again. And lo and behold, a year later, the spring came and all of the pink, beautiful flowers that come on the peach tree started to blossom. I think here in spring, it's like June. It's like March, spring in Texas. <laughs> so like when March hit last winter, I was like, yes, spring. And they're like, nope. I was like, ooh. <laughs> Nonetheless, in March, when the pink flowers begin to bloom, he came back and we began to prune the spring pruning. Some of those blooms that, so that the fruit that was there would be the best of fruit. And again, the vine dresser oversees all of that. He takes away that which does not bear fruit and he cleans and cultivates for the best fruit to come about. But then he keeps going. Verse three, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. There might not be a more massive verse in this section. Let me read that again. This should invoke some amens, I think. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. So thinking back to the identity sermon several weeks ago, if you're in Christ, you are seen as clean and spotless right now. I don't care what you drug into the room today. I don't care what mess you got yourself into on Friday or Saturday night, last night. Whatever you drug into the room, if you're in Christ, he sees you as clean and spotless, amen? You're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come, Corinthians says. You're a son, you're a daughter. <laughs> and so it's interesting what the text is doing here. You've got clean in verse three, and then you've got prune in, at the end of verse two. It's the same word, but emphasizing two different things. It's a play on words. The cleaning talked about in verse three is a done deal. That if you're in Christ, there's no progressive work to get into his favor. There's, there's no amount of tasks that you can do for God to finally love you. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation. He loves you now. You're clean. But then the vine dresser, the father, he's cultivating, he's pruning, he's cleaning you progressively. So what he's accomplished in you, he will continue in you on that day where he either takes us home to be with him and we're made fully into the image of Christ or we die and go on to meet him through death. 
that it's cleaned and is cleaning us. He's working these things out. So the word of Christ, this is the gospel. It redeems. And Jesus speaks these words. He teaches these words. The father as the vine dresser perfects this in us so that we might bear more fruit. What he has made alive, he perfectly sustains. So the question I would pose to us, if you're in Christ, and we need to understand, and this is what verse two does that creates a bit of a dilemma. For those who are in him, some that didn't bear fruit, he threw away. So it's gotta be more than just being in him. And thankfully, verses four and five are gonna unpack that for us. Here's the question I would pose to us, though, before we move forward. Do you think that God wastes anything? Do you? Romans 8, we know that God works all things for the good. Your own sin, the sins of others, the fact that we live in a fallen world, that creation has been subjected to futility, the vine dresser, the master cultivator uses all of those things to prune and refine so that we might bear much fruit but we need to understand what our, what our part is, and verse four is gonna explain that to us, because up to this point, the only thing you and I bring to the table in this story is brokenness. That's it. The vine's done all the work to bring the life. The vine dresser's doing all the work to prune us so that we bear fruit, so what do we bring to the table? I'm glad you asked. Verse four, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. So a couple things I wanna say before we really unpack what this is saying. First, what is our role? And our role is this, to abide. We start to see our role in this as the branches, our role is to abide. So then the question is, what is abiding? What does it mean to abide? Because we've seen already in verse two, it's not enough to just be in Christ. You realize the demons know about Christ? You realize that? There's a way to know and not know. There's a way to know about him. There's a way to seem in him, but not abide in him. The word abide means in and under Like it's my loyalty, my affection, my everything is drawn underneath the person and work of Christ. I have no other loyalty. It's one thing to know. It's a whole nother thing to submit and bring your loyalties under. That's abiding. It's remaining. And it's instantaneously when we give our hearts to him, but it's longevity. You ever been to a youth rally where 60 kids come up and give their life to Jesus? and emotionalism's at its height, and half of those kids leave and never darken the step of a church again. Is the Lord moving and saving in that room? Absolutely he is. Are there those there that are responding out of emotion and in Christ, but never under Christ? That's why in verse two, when it says, in Christ, didn't bear fruit, cut off and removed, that's the judgment. This is not a small thing. This is not something we tinker with. I have had clients of mine over the years, I've had people under my care as a pastor that have brought these verses right from John and say, I don't know. 
What if I'm one of the ones that isn't bearing fruit? Am I the only one in this room that's had seasons where they couldn't see any fruit in their life? I have read these verses myself and found myself wondering, what if I'm one of these? It's why the scriptures say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's not flippant. It's not something we take lightly. Three things we see here. First, how do we abide? How does Jesus abide in us, rather? For the disciples, you see that Jesus was with them. He taught them. He walked with them. He prayed with them. He showed them miracles. He directed them in the will of the Father. He was present with them. He gave them their word, as we just read in verse 3. He gave them the gospel. Here's the good news, people, brothers and sisters. We have Jesus' words today. He is with us. Second, he did not leave his disciples alone. When Jesus left, he said, I, I've got to go. I've got to leave. I'm paraphrasing this, but he's like, I've got to go. I've got to leave, but I've got to leave so that he can come. And he's talking about the Holy Spirit, the great helper, the great counselor. He didn't leave them alone. When Jesus ascended, the Spirit fell down on them, and the same Holy Spirit that came when Jesus ascended indwells with us now. The third person of the Trinity, God in the form of the Spirit, dwells with us now. And then also, even now, Romans would say that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. Does that not just blow your mind? That the things you do not even know you're going to struggle with later, the things that are going to come against you later, right now, the Son of God is interceding for you in those things. So when it says, what gives? Abide in me as I abide in you. I hear that on paper and I'm like, well, what does that mean? I'm supposed to abide in him and I get everything from him. I get life. I have fruit comes from that. Everything I need to survive comes from abiding. What does Jesus get out of abiding in me? Nothing. The abiding for Jesus is, is I'm here. I'm ever present. I'm not far off. I'm not distant. I'm there with you. I've given you my word. The spirit dwells amongst you and I'm interceding for you now. Amen. This is the hope we have that we have not been left alone. That as we seek to come in and under Christ and abide, he is there. He is steadfast. He does not take a nap. His word does not return void. The spirit moves and presses the hardened heart. He is moving in our lives. He abides. He is trustworthy. Second point, what is the nature of the fruit produced from abiding? It's immediate, but the emphasis over the span. So you're, what you're going to start seeing build here in the rest of the verses through 11 is this instantaneous change that happens and that we're cleaned. But over the longevity of it, over the, 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 the long haul over it, over the long run, that's the proof of the work. That's the proof of the fruit. That's the proof of the abiding. It's not a flash in a pan. It's not a quick explosion. It's there one second and it's gone the next. That the work that Christ does to truly regenerate us so that we can come under and abide in him will bear fruit over the long run. So if you heard my sermon a couple weeks ago, you heard me talk about Mike. And when we were at a part of a church plant, a house church in the New Orleans area, I talked about Mike. 
I, I used some examples about Mike, and Mike grew up on the streets in New Orleans. He learned to snort cocaine from his dad at 14 years old. And Jesus supernaturally visited Mike and saved Mike. And Mike began to come to our small group. And Mike said the thing you should never say in small group because he didn't know. No one ever told him not to say that. But instantaneously, you began to see a work in Mike. You began to see him changing. But the evidence of that grace over the long run is the longevity of the fruit that the vine dresser is going to work out in Mike's life. That it's not just saved and then leaving him alone. He saves him. He grafts him in. And then as Mike comes under, in and under, he abides in Christ, the vine dresser creates more and more fruit in Mike. And Mike, the fruits that are so evident are seen by others. More on this in a few verses. So several weeks ago, Pastor Kai talked um, as we were preaching through Galatians. You remember him talking about the fruit of the Spirit? Um, Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And, and what, what I, the common misconception, because this is how we gauge, like, okay, well, am I abiding or not? Well, I guess I'll see. Um, I, I'm doing pretty good on the fruit of the Spirit. I got some good love and joy and peace. Struggle with the self-control self, self and, and gentleness. Not very gentle, but I got these things. And so what the misunderstanding consistently, and this was Kai's, one of his main points, the misunderstanding consistently with Galatians 5.22 is fruits of the Spirit. It's not plural. It's singular. Fruit of the Spirit. That if you're missing one, it means it's fake fruit. So here's the example I would use. I have a natural disposition towards peace. My, my wife might disagree, but she's not in the room, so she can't indict me. But I have a natural inclination towards peace. I have a peaceful personality, somewhat easygoing. As I abide in Christ, that peace shows itself as a true fruit. But if I'm not abiding in Christ and I look peaceful, but have no self-control in my life, it's fake fruit. You understand that? Do you hear what that's saying? That means that because it's not fruits, it's fruit, your, ab your abiding reveals where you're planted. So if your fruits, if your fruit of your life doesn't measure up to what, what, what the Spirit says it should be, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, if it doesn't measure up to that, it reveals that your abiding is wrong. And then this is what I believe, and we'll see this later in verses 10 and 11, that our hearts have been created by God to worship him. Those affections, that worship, perfectly terminate on him in a vertical relationship. And abiding is similar, that if you're created to abide and dwell and come under Christ, if you're not abiding in him, you're abiding somewhere else. And here's what I would ask us all. Where you're abiding, can the fruit of that help you with your broken marriage? Can it? If you're not abiding in Christ, can the fruit of that help you through the trials of life and the circumstances that come out of nowhere and shake the very core of who you are? Can they? Can the abiding in something other than Christ, can the fruit of that bring you a peace and a surety of faith that gives you a peace in the most difficult of places? Can it? I would contend no. 
And so where you see a natural inclination in a person doesn't mean that they're abiding in Christ if there's voids in other parts of their life. Third part, between verses four and five, not abiding in Christ equals no fruit or there is fake fruit as I just talked about, which means we're helpless and hopeless apart from Christ. So when, when, when verse three and then verse four talks about Christ preaching the word, giving us his word. I think there's a misconception that we mature beyond the gospel, the Jesus stuff. Oh, I got the Jesus stuff. I'm good with that. I need to, I'm gonna need to move on to the, to the meat. Can I just tell us all you don't mature past the gospel? I, 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 give me an amen or something. Like you don't mature past the gospel. Not at all. It's not elementary. That's not junior varsity that the gospel is what perfectly sustains us and draws us back to our need to abide over and over and over, that we're helpless and hopeless apart from Christ and not abiding in Christ reveals our identity somewhere else. And this is where Ephesians speaks well to what the identity parts are talking about here in John 15, that if our identity is in Christ because of what he's done for us, then we abide in and under that identity and from there fruit is grown and the vine dresser works those things in our life. So if you see a lack of fruit in your life, what it means is you have a misplaced identity and you're not abiding under Christ. That's what that means. And so you reverse engineer it. So here's, here's the grace. This is not a condemning message right here. This is a gift for us from Jesus himself. He's saying, when you can see in your life that there's a lack of fruit, what that means always is you're abiding in something other than Christ. What an opportunity in broke is to return back to Christ. So if you were an apprentice, if you were apprenticing under a master and they were teaching you a discipline. I guess what some researchers would say is it takes 10,000 hours or 10 years, give or take, to master something. So if you were apprenticing under a master, it would be necessary for you to remain under that master so that you could learn the discipline and eventually flourish and survive in that discipline and be able to make a living for yourself. To remove yourself out from underneath the master would mean you could not flourish to the degree that you would need to to survive. To, to, to a small degree, that's a picture of what's being talked about here, that we're to be under, we abide in Christ all right, verse six. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. So keeping in mind what we've already talked about in verse two and some of what it says in verse three, that not being in and under Christ leads to judgment. It's not enough to just know Christ. It's not enough to just be in Christ. We see this in verse two. In Christ, no fruit thrown into the fire in verse six. In and under, abiding. And so Jesus, what he's doing, he's talking to the disciples here. He's purposely using language that he's already used in other parts of the gospel. And the language he's using is identifying to Judas. 
And what the scriptures are doing for us is it's using Judas's betrayal of Christ to paint a picture for what it means to be in Christ but not abide. Because what that means for Judas is that he was in Christ. He heard Christ's teachings. He saw Christ's miracles. But he did not love Christ. He wasn't abiding in Christ. So when he betrayed in his sorrow, he hung himself so let's take two characters since we're talking about Jesus and God, Judas and Jesus is using Judas to introduce this idea. Take Judas and Peter. Both betrayed Jesus, did they not? Jesus, Judas sold Jesus over. He handed him over for how many pieces of silver? I'm gonna test you. 30. You know, how, you know what's worth 30 pieces of silver? A slave was in those days. So for 30 pieces of silver, he betrayed Jesus. And not only betrayed him, betrayed him with a kiss. Peter denied Jesus. Peter was with Christ, and Christ says, Satan's demanded to sift you. Peter, that's a conversation I would never want to have with Jesus, my Lord. Did you say no? Please, tell me you said no. Peter's demand, Satan's demanded to sift you, Peter, and you will deny me three times before the rooster crows. And sure enough, Peter denies Christ to three different people in three different situations, and the rooster crows. Turn to John chapter 21. John 21. In Judas's sorrow, both of Judas and Peter both experienced agonizing sorrow but Judas, in his sorrow, tries to take the money back and give it back to them and tells them horizontally, I have sinned. And Acts would tell us that he attempted to hang himself, but he fell upon the rocks down below and he was disemboweled and that he was, and, and he was cut off judgment for eternity. But with Peter, we see something different. John 21, verse 15 says, and, and here's the context Jesus is about to reveal himself to the disciples. They're out fishing. They shouldn't have been. Jesus has died. He's resurrected. They're about to have an encounter with Christ, and they've had this encounter. He tells them to throw the net over to catch the fish, and now Jesus engages with Peter. Verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He, he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love him? So just as Peter denied Christ on the third time, Jesus asked him again on the third time. And what you see is a God-wrought brokenness with Peter. He doesn't run away from the Lord. He runs to the Lord. So here's the question for all of us. When you're squared up with your sin, do you run away from Jesus or do you run to him? That will reveal your abiding. When I was in college, um, it was my, really it was my last year of school, but a lot of my friends had graduated and I was wrapping up my last semester and it was headed into the summer. I'd gotten a job the semester previous to that and I was 
working. I made some new friends. I, I was in Bible college studying to be a pastor, but I was, I think I've shared part of this in my testimony with you guys, but I was incredibly disenfranchised with the church. So the town where I lived was a, there was three colleges. There was a Baptist Bible college. There was a Church of Christ Bible college. There was a Methodist Bible college, just a recipe for religiosity, if you ask me. So being in there for four years, I was a bit over it. <laughs> and yet at the same time, I'm wanting to be a pastor, but I've kind of gotten a bit jaded and cynical at this time. I start this job, I make a whole new group of friends, and guess what, they didn't love Jesus. And I, I found um, connection with these friends. I began to hang out with these friends, and, and oftentimes I was the designated driver for these friends, but I found myself growing more and more disenfranchised with the church and growing more and more distant from Christ. And it wasn't as if I hated Christ. I still loved him. It wasn't that I didn't long for him. I still longed for him, but I could feel myself self drifting away as I got pulled into a different pursuit of life and I was abiding in different things. And I was asked to be a part of this spiritual retreat as one of the spiritual advisors back home where I grew, grew up. And once a month for six months, we'd have to drive back or drive together and meet to plan for this big retreat. And on one of those weekends when I was back home, I connected with an old friend of mine. And this old friend, he He's one of those guys who, and hopefully you have a friend like this in your life because they, they, they feel like he's got a red phone to Jesus. Like when God talks to this guy, he's like always spot on. And he's kind of a little bit weird. Like it's kind of, it's he's weird to hang out with, but you love him because you know he's for you and you know he's tied in and dialed in to Jesus. Brandon was this guy to me and there was this little prayer chapel at this church. It's always open. To this day, when I go back home, it's always open. 24-7, and we, we would go to this prayer chapel when we were in high school, and so I met Brandon at this prayer chapel, and we were spending some time praying, and I didn't, he didn't know what I was going through. He didn't know that I was struggling as much as I was, and as we were praying, Brandon stopped, and he said, I feel like the Lord's told me something. It was always, when, when Brandon said that, you kind of flinched, you know, you kind of begin to cringe a bit, because you don't know what's going to come out of his mouth. Chances are it's going to be right, and you're starting to cringe, and Brandon says, the Lord's shown me something. He's laid something in my heart for you, Lee. It doesn't make sense to me, but I'm hoping it makes sense to you. He said, I've got this picture in my mind, Lee. There's this picture of a road sign, and I, I can't quite make out what the road sign is, but the road sign, it's like a stop sign or a yield sign, but when you see it, it's going to make sense to you, and you're going to know what to do. I was like, Okay, Brandon, that's helpful, not at all. And we parted ways. <laughs> and four months later, I had continued to abide in other places. I'd continued to drift from the Lord. I continued to drift away from Christ. Went home to do this big spiritual retreat. I was in no place to be the spiritual advisor on the spiritual retreat, I can assure you. But I'm driving home on the plains of West Texas, you can see 50 miles in any direction on old farmlands to get back to college. There's no intersections, there's no crossroads. It's just mile and miles of highway straightforward. And in the middle of nowhere, someone had taken a stop sign from somewhere, Lord knows where, some hooligans. <laughs> and they had taken it and they had tried to plant it in the ground somewhat near the highway and it was leaned over. And when I drove by that stop sign, I knew immediately what I needed to do. And I ran back to Jesus and I repented. When you're faced with your sin, your brokenness will reveal your abiding. So my question to you, church, 
Do you love him? Do you love him like Peter? We're in the midst of your mess, in the midst of your brokenness. It's revealed to you. And because of that abiding relationship that's been given to you because of Christ's love first, you run to him. And guess what? You find him every time. Or do you run away? This will tell you where you abide. If you abide in Christ, he will draw you back into the fold, as Jesus says in one of the parables. He will go seeking the lost coin. He will search out the lost son. He will draw you in to life in the vine. So when, you're, when he's talking about being thrown into the fire, think Judas and Peter. Judas ran from Christ because his abiding wasn't in and under Christ. Peter was in and under Christ and he returned to Christ and there's life and vitality there. Go back to John 15. Verse seven, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Let me tell you what this is not saying. Because <laughs> as this is building, hopefully you can see what's going on here. That the more time you spend dwelling in God's word, dwelling in prayer, abiding in Christ, your heart aligns with the thing of, things of God. So how the prosperity gospel has hijacked this is name it, claim it. If you follow Christ, royalty and riches flow with it. So ask for, the, ask for the Bentley. Ask for the Rolex. You'll see these preachers on television with gold cufflinks and, and fancy jets and fancy cars saying that if you ask in the name of the Lord, he'll give you whatever you want. That's not what the verse is saying. As you dwell richly under, in and under Christ, your heart is unified with the things of God and as we're unified with the things of God, we ask according to God's heart, your kingdom come, your will be done for your glory, Lord, that our hearts become in sync. And then verse eight, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. And, and going back to that picture of Mike, that as Mike abided in Christ over the years, you saw more and more fruit as a result of Mike's life. As he abided in Christ, you saw transformation take place as he was in God's word, as he was in prayer, as he was in the covenant community. It's why we preach small groups like we do. Small groups create an opportunity to abide in Christ, not to get a buddy. If you get a buddy, awesome creates opportunity to abide. It's why we gather corporately to worship. Let the redeemed of the Lord gather and say so. It's an opportunity for us to abide. It's why we preach the gospel week in and week out so that we might abide in and under Christ for his glory. And isn't it amazing that God is glorified as we abide, Christ brings that life, the fruit blossoms God is glorified in it. And guess what? He actually uses that fruit to save a lost and dying world. Because here's the reality. Jesus doesn't need me to do what he's gonna do in your heart. He's gonna do that regardless. That's what the vine dresser does. It's why what verse one said is so important. Jesus is giving the life. God's gonna complete the work. 
But God invites us into that as we abide to be a part of that redemptive story that he's doing so that as we bear fruit, we glorify God and he uses us in a lost and dying world. It's what Pastor John talked about last week, salt and light. Isn't that amazing? That he doesn't need us, but he uses us to be ministers of grace, agents of grace in a lost and dying world. So longevity, steadfastness and faithfulness, but growing and developing so that if you're new in Christ, it's not I arrived yesterday and have no more to gain, that the progression of what Jesus is saying is that he draws you in and he saves you and you're clean. And the Father's going to continue that refining and cultivating work that you never arrive this side of heaven. There's no Gnostics in the room. You know what I mean by Gnostic? Like the, the person with the extra measure of knowledge that surpasses everybody else in the room. Nobody in this room has arrived. We're all in Christ. We're all beggars. We found bread and we're looking for Christ together. And as we're in that process, God continues to refine and grow us so that we might bear much fruit and be conformed to the image of his son. So sticking with the examples from my dad, I wish that I could just snap and take every one of you there right now and you could just be on his back porch. So again, keep in mind, mom's a landscape architect. Dad's a horticulturist. Their backyard's incredible. <laughs> and so the length of my life, they've been working on that backyard. It's like a little haven. It's like a garden of Eden. And when people that have never been back there well, people that have been back there dozens of times still say the same thing. When people that have not seen it come back into their backyard and they see it, they're blown away. They're, they're like, I have that plant. I had no idea it's supposed to look like that. Mine's dying in my house. Like everything he touches grows the way it's supposed to because he's a master cultivator. He knows how it's supposed to look. He knows what sunlight. He knows what soil. He knows what time of a day to water some. He knows others that shouldn't be watered near as much. He knows these things because he knows his plants. And it brings glory to him when people say, you have an unbelievably beautiful backyard. How much more God the Father? Because I don't know about you, but up to this point, we've brought nothing to the table except brokenness. And God, as we submit and come in and under through abiding, God does beautiful things with jacked up, broken people. And when the lost world sees what he's done, it commands attention. We have some good friends this weekend um, back in Texas. They're probably our best friends, husband and wife. Um, they are giving their testimony at their church this weekend Really neat because we've been with them in their lowest times, and I wish I had time to tell you their story, but we, we were with them when he got thrown in jail for, for some heinous crimes. She was at her lowest point. We met them. They divorced. God saved him. God renewed her heart. They reconciled and remarried and now have a marriage ministry. And they're giving their testimony this weekend. Not to brag on them, I can assure you. To brag on God's glorious grace that he could take such a mess, a mess that if I told you at length would cause some of you to cringe and did beautiful things with it. 
And I can assure you there's gonna be broken marriages in their church service today throughout the day as they give their story over and over that are gonna be drawn into life because of what God's done through them. This is the work the vine dresser does because of the life established by the vine people. Brothers, sisters, your loyalty will be somewhere. Your abiding will be somewhere. And the question for us today is, can it bring the life and fruit that deals with the harsh circumstances that we're all in and under? Because the fruit that comes through abiding in Christ does every time. Verse nine, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. So what's amazing about this, we abide from this love that has been lavished upon us. We don't abide to get it. Don't miss this. Legalism, religiosity would say, come to church, check all the checklist off so that God doesn't strike you down with a lightning bolt. He's lavished his love on us and we abide from that position. Is there any other identity, any greater identity that we can be given than that place of loved? Loved one says it every week, you are loved. I mean, Kai loves you, no doubt. The elders love you, no doubt. You know why they say that? Right here. His love's been lavished on you. And from that position, our response is to abide in and under Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Jesus is calling on the greatest command there. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. A vertical relationship with everything. Verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So our greatest joy is found when we abide in Christ. It's not enough to be in. Are you in and under? Are you abiding? Let's pray. So let me read something over you as we prepare our hearts to pray. What you love most is where you abide. What do you love most in life? What you love most is where you abide. Where you abide is where your allegiance and obedience are found. And this is where your greatest identity is found. If your identity is not Christ, then your abiding is not in Christ, which means your love is not for Christ. So I think right now, ask the Lord. Ask him to search your heart. So we realize from what Jesus is saying that our union with our Lord is through his grace and his grace alone. Romans would say we've been grafted in. So the very life and the very fruit that we could have isn't from us, it's from his grace. Our response is simple. It's obedience, it's to abide. Do you know him? But do you love him? It's not enough to be in. In and under, do you love him? Is he your loyalty, is he your treasure? You see your hope. Lord, use your word to fill our minds, direct our wills, 
and transform our affections. But maybe, maybe you know Maybe you know Jesus, but you're not abiding in him. Maybe you're like me, the story that I shared. You've drifted from the Lord. You've gone a different way. You've, you, you love him. You, you want to love him more, but you know you've drifted. Run to Jesus in your brokenness. Run to Christ in your conviction. There's life there. Abide there. Don't run. Don't be like Judas and run. Come under his glorious grace. Come under his mercies. Bring your loyalties and your allegiances under him. Abide in him. Rest in your identity in Christ and abide from that place. Maybe you're here and you're resisting God's pruning. You're in the vine. You've had fruit in your life, but you know he's pruning. He's using some tough circumstances right now to nip away at you to cut away, to clean, to cultivate. It's hurt. It hurts, doesn't it? It's painful. And everything in you wants to resist it. Nothing in you wants to embrace it. Can you trust that it's for your good? Right now, ask him. Ask him in your heart. If you're resisting his pruning, ask the Lord to help you yield to it. It's for your good. It's for his glory. Our greatest joy is found there. It's a grace. And so, Lord, we ask big things of you in these areas. We confess that we've abided elsewhere, Jesus. We confess that we've identified ourselves apart from you. But we come back to you, Lord. We put our hearts under you. We want to abide in you, O oh Lord. Once again, would you minister, would you draw us near to your heart? We thank you for the gospel that, that, that in that grace, in that truth, it draws us into life, draws us into hope. So Lord, for those who are here, who are resisting your pruning, I ask God that you would bring them under your mighty hand, that you would show them your goodness, even in the hurt, even in the pain that you're cultivating, you're doing a good work, Restore to them the joy of their salvation today, right now. Lord, if there are those in this room who do not know you, they, maybe they know of Christ. Maybe they think Christ is a clever idea, especially with where I am in life, and maybe I need to, to give in to that, but, but they, they're not abiding in him. Their heart isn't under Christ. Let today be the day that the scales fall off. Let today be the day that salvation happens in their heart. Lord, we love you and we need you for all these things. So have your way now as we lay our hearts before you in Jesus' name, amen.